The Art of Leadership Network. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast for church planters. My name is Andy Wood, and I'll be your host. Today, you're going to hear a fun conversation between me and my good friend, Sean Sears. He's the lead pastor of Grace Community Church just outside of Boston, multi-site church. Sean's story is incredibly encouraging. You're going to get some practical tools out of it. But before we go there, I want to make sure you know about a couple things. First of all, uh, we're so privileged to be a part of the Art of Leadership Network with Carrie Newhoff. Um, Carrie Newhoff and the Art of Leadership Network, they partner together with some great podcasts from Brad Lominick to Jeff Henderson to Jenny Catron to my good friend Sean Morgan with Leaders in Living Rooms. And they also uh, just released a great resource for leaders. So if you head over to kerrynewhoff.com, check out the Art of Leadership Academy. You'll get some details there. Um, Also, we wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Food for the Hungry. Uh, Food for the Hungry is a great place where you can combine your church's heart for the poor uh, and global ministry through their experience. So to get more information about that, just go to fh.org slash churches. Now, one other thing I wanted to share with you, a really cool story. So we launched this last month, uh, our first cohort for church planters. We had have nine planters going through this cohort. We hosted them in the Bay Area uh, at Echo Church, and it was just incredible hearing their stories, church planters from all over the country, uh, and just to see some of the learnings that came out of that time together. And I'm excited because now we're going to be able to launch our second cohort, for church planters. And so if you go to the ascentleader.org, uh, there's more details there. If you want to go straight to cohorts, you just go to the ascentleader.org slash cohorts. And I'll talk a little bit more about that on the back end. Now, let me uh, share some things I want to encourage you to take note on as we jump into this conversation here with Sean. Uh, one of the things that I love about Sean's story is he didn't get a fast start to the church plant. And it's encouraging because Sean is going to share some of the perseverance that is required to plant a church. And I just want to encourage you, if you're out there, you're working hard as a church planter and it's not going as fast as you want it to go, uh, hang in there, persevere, and let this story be an encouragement to you to keep going when leadership is hard. And also, um, there's a part of this conversation that is just me and Sean, you know, as buddies, just going back and forth on our heart for reaching people who don't know Jesus And this is really the foundation of church planting. This is what it's all about. I I pray that that encourages you and challenges you. And I want to encourage you just to to lean in when we get to that part. I'll be back on the the back end to wrap it up. But I want to encourage you uh, just to to let this episode be an encouragement to you uh, as Sean and I talk about our journey of church planting together. Well, I'm here with Sean Sears, my good friend from Boston Grace Church. Sean, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited about it. Sean, when when I think of church planters, um, you're one of the classic examples, not just of someone who's entrepreneurial, but somebody who is focused, passionate, resilient, uh, relentless in all ways. And I'm excited to hear a little bit of your story Tell us a little bit about your family and uh, what season of life you're in and what you're up to right now before we jump into your church planting story. Um, I've been married since 91. Um, I married a chick with a dude's name. Her name is Billy. Uh, We actually knew each other when we were little bitty kids. 
On the day we got married, my mother-in-law found a picture of us together when I was four and she was three. I don't even know if I've ever told you or right. My parents and her parents were at the same Bible college and we got together one time in preschool. Our families did. And then we got together one more time and I think I was a seventh grader. So she would have been a sixth grader, never saw her again until college. Then we we, uh, got married. We have three kids. Our uh, oldest two are married. My son uh, and his wife, Leslie, live in Denver. He works for a missions organization. My daughter and her husband are in uh, Dayton, Ohio, and and they're in student ministry. My daughter's a nurse, and my youngest son is a freshman in college. So I'm an empty nester, which just means I get to walk around. <laughs> I was uh, going to say, I get to walk around in my boxers all day, but I don't know your audience, so I don't know if that's too much. Yeah. I apologize. Well, uh, thanks for that visual image, Sean. I appreciate that. <laughs> Hey, uh, you know, one thing I love about your story and, you know, as you kind of highlight your family, you have been doing this for a while and all three of your kids, after being a part of a church plant, have grown up to be passionate about Jesus and love the local church. And if you had to say, like, what's what's one thing that you and Billy did that really influenced that, you know, aside from the grace of God? Yeah, it's, that's a really good question. Um, man, I, that, that's a, it's a, I think it's a hard question too, because I don't know if there's any one particular thing. I, I would say that that is the thing I am most grateful for in, in, in our life is that um, each one of our kids became devoted followers of Jesus and are still following Jesus on their own as adults. And um, I, I, I think there's a couple of things. I think uh, my dad is a Christian and was a godly, godly father. And one of my most prominent memories of childhood is my dad praying with me every night. So from the time each one of our kids were born and came home, no lie, I would walk into their bedroom. They're laying in the crib. I'd put my hand on their, on their little tiny tummy or their head, and I, w- I would pray over them. And my prayer was always out loud, and it was, dear God, keep them safe, keep them pure, help them to be godly. Help them when they're old enough to turn from sin and begin following the ways of Jesus. And then I would pray wherever their future spouses are in the world, if they're even born yet, uh, let keep them safe and pure. Help them to be godly. Help them to turn from sin and begin following Jesus and help them to raise my grandkids to know and to follow God. And as my kids got older, I kept praying mm-hmm. with them out loud every single night. I'll tell you the cool thing is that my son, who's home from college now, I just got home last week, is 19. And I'm in the living room and he's about to go to bed and he comes in and he says, Hey, I'm going to bed. And he just pauses because he's waiting for me to stand up from the couch, come over, dap him up. I put, I, so we're, we've, our hands are kind of clasped, right? Like when you dap somebody up and you put your left hand behind their back, he puts his head on my shoulder. I put my head on his shoulder and I, and I pray mm-hmm. over him. And like he does it at night. My 26 year old son, this happened a couple of years ago. Uh, he came home, he's married and he said, Hey dad, I'm going to bed. And he paused. And like, I don't even think he realized why he paused. And I stood up, walked over to him, dapped him up and I prayed over him too. And to have your grown man sons, like stay with you as a guest and not go to bed until you pray Mm -hmm. over them. Like that's, that's cooler than any other church planting story I have. So I'd say if there's one thing I did is we made we made our relationship with God a part of our identity as a family 
more than my identity as a career. Like, so this wasn't something that we do because of daddy's job, right? So it was never about what I did for a living or my even calling. This had to do with, this is who we are as Mm -hmm. people. We're followers of Jesus. Now, you know, you're not born as a child into, I mean, I'm not saying that, but I, Anything to do about our relationship with God, our prayer time, or our involvement in the church, this is something we do because we're followers of Jesus, not because daddy's a pastor. So they never saw the church as the reason why, or dad's job as a pastor, as the reason why we mm-hmm. do anything. Um, and so they, that's yeah. good, man. I, I, I don't even know if that's a good explanation for that, but I, I think that that's a unique part of our story that has been beneficial to yeah. our family, is that our relationship with God is distinct from my role as a, as a, as a pastor in a local Yeah, church. I think that's so good. And it's interesting because, you know, we've been on the this journey. This is actually our third uh, episode that we've had so far. And this has kind of been a theme that has emerged already that, you know, a lot of church planters, they, they focus so hard on winning with the church, but then they lose at home. And so the line that we use, we say we want to help church planters win early and finish strong. And it, it'd be yeah. it'd be awesome to win early and launch your church. But then if you get to the end of the journey and you look back 20, 25 years later and you're like, I, I lost my family, it's not worth it. And every time I'm with you, Sean, I always feel like I'm challenged in that. I always feel like there's specific things that I learned from you. So thanks for thanks for being an example for other church planters with that. Now, your story is a unique church planting story in the fact that it was like a kind of plotting. Talk a little bit about the story behind the story. How many years did it take for Grace Church to break 200? And talk talk about that because, yeah, you you have some people you can encourage right now. Yeah, in your introduction, you're saying Sean is a, the most in whatever the the blah 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 church planner. I'm like, bro, it didn't feel like that at all. I I tell people I'm the most accidental church planter ever. So I actually was teaching at a Bible college here in Boston when my non-religious neighbors asked me to start a Bible study for a friend of theirs who was also non-religious but had attempted suicide. We're in the hospital visiting her friend, and my non-religious neighbor said to her friend, you need to be in a Bible study. If Sean started one, would you go to it? And she said, yeah, if you and your husband will go. She goes, okay, Sean. So my Bible study wasn't even started by a church person. (laughs) Even the very first Bible study came at the prompting of somebody who was spiritually disconnected at the time. And so I always felt like we were playing catch up to to what God was kind of pushing us to do rather than out in front pulling it, right? So um, it's not that we, I never had a prospectus. I mean, I think I met you, like you and I were friends before I ever had a prospectus, anything written out, right? As like, quote unquote, as a business plan, as as like what a a, a prospectus is. It's like a business plan for a church, right? So it's like, here's our strategy, here's our direction, here's our timeline, here's our mile markers, all that stuff goes into a prospectus and you present that to a church so that they'll financially partner with you or, you know, make you a part of their prayer strategy, their teams, their, their missions strategy. But yeah, so we started this Bible study in response to our actual friends across the street who were going through, who had a friend going through a hard time and they kept bringing their friends. 
And uh, it was in our living room. Uh, when we outgrew our living room, which only took about 25 people, we have a small house. In Boston, uh, a lot of our houses are small. So I, each floor is 600 square feet. And I have a two-story house, a <laughs> small house. So that 600 square feet has a kitchen, a bathroom, a dining room, and a living room. And you can max that out with about 20 people. And when we grew beyond that, we did two Bible studies. And when we outgrew that, that's when we ended up launching on Sundays. But it took us four years to get to 100 people. And I come from a, a small denomination with small churches. And when we hit 100 people, I remember a, a pastor friend of mine who's very close to me. Uh, he said, uh, man, your church is bigger than mine now. Why are we still giving you support? And no lie, we never got another check from that church ever again. Because his church ran about 85, and now at year four, we had 100. What he didn't know is that my wife and I were the only people giving more than $100 a week in the offering. So, Because nobody in our church was a Christian yeah. yet. Um, but, but that's when I found you, uh, for, um, Steve and Rick and the guys at Lake Point, the strate- you know, strate- strategic launch network. And those guys just started giving us coaching. So it took us four years to get to a hundred, but then one year to get to 200. Cause I realized my biggest problem was not my theology. It was my decision-making. And I think churches are great at, at doctrine and we're, we're bad at leadership, right? Like, it, it, whoever's listening to this, if you went to a seminary, they did a great job probably teaching you why you believe what you do, but you may not have had any classes on how to actually organize and lead teams of people to help more people know this than what you can actually right. teach. So it was that leadership component I was missing. That's so good. So when you looked at the leadership component, what were some of the nuggets of wisdom that you felt like really unlocked for you, how to move forward? I think, um, and I don't know that anybody ever actually said this to me, but if the Holy Spirit is like water, like he wants to flow downhill, right? Like God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to, come to repentance. And I I really do believe that. I, I think we all would believe that God is more interested in people turning from sin to begin following Jesus than we are. Right. So, and then Jesus said, I will build my church. So if it's not happening in my local context, it's probably not because of God. Right. Like, I don't know that we have to ask Jesus to do his job better. Jesus, my church isn't growing. Would you please grow my church? Would you please, would you please do what you said you would do? Like, he's going to do it. Like, it's, the problem isn't on his end. So I think the one thing I learned was that if, if, if first timers aren't showing up at our church, there's a reason for that. Probably has nothing to do with Jesus. There are legitimate reasons why. It might be that nobody knows where we're at. It might be that it's difficult to get to. It might be that it's dirty or the outside of the building looks sketchy and a family isn't going to bring their young children into a building that looks like they're going to get need tetanus shots after they visit. You know what I mean? Or So there's legitimate reasons why people aren't coming. And my job is to identify the obstacles, the barriers to people coming to faith in Jesus in my local church. And I think the job of, the, of, a, of a church planter is not to initiate momentum. I think that's the Holy Spirit's job. I think our job is to identify all of the obstacles keeping that from happening, and we, we eliminate mm. those barriers. So I think my number one job is not to create momentum in our church. My number one job is to identify the reasons why it's not happening, and then to eliminate or, or remove those barriers. So I'm, I'm a, we're barrier busters is what we are. That's what it looks like, I think. So it's, I think that was the thing I learned look for the reasons why it's not happening and just remove those reasons and water flows downhill. So if you're looking at it like a stream, 
if, if, if at your local church plant, there's just a trickle right now, then there's logs laying across the stream uphill. Your job is to walk uphill, find those logs and pull them out of the, out of the creek. Yeah. Yeah. I think Sean, one of the other aspects of this too, that is very clear is the amount of passion that you have for reaching people who are far from God. And so there are times where I think church leaders are really strategic and maybe they're removing the, they're trying to remove those logs or those barriers, but the heart behind it is not there. And so it's like, it's the heart and the passion in conjunction with what you're talking about, because you've got that, you have that deep within you. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit to church planters who maybe they're struggling with this idea of, I really want to be a church for people who are far from God. And there's, there's this internal battle. Why do we start a church? Do we start a church to reach, you know, people that will follow a leader like us? Do we start a church so that we can build a platform? Like there's all kinds of reasons, but at the end of the day, really the only reason to plant a church is to reach people that don't know Jesus. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 so yeah, even in that language I was using a minute ago, uh, God grow our church, grow our church, grow our church. What what I'm? Why do I want our church to grow? Because if our church grows, and that means some of my actual friends who are spiritually disconnected from God will have found their way back to God through faith in Jesus. Like that's that's the ultimate reason. I tell church planters that one of the most dangerous things to happen to your church plant is for you to get a hundred people, because now you have enough people in the church to keep you distracted from the mission of your church. Hmm which is everybody who's not here, right? Like we don't judge. I don't think you ought to judge. Like I know that your church is in multiple locations and each of your locations have multiple services. And some people would go, in fact, I had a guy tell me, he said, when is enough going to be enough for you? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, your church is already big. What? Like, why aren't you satisfied with that? I didn't understand the question. Like for us to be satisfied with where our church is at means that the seven of my friends who are still disconnected from God will stay separated from God and will enter eternity the same way, separated from God. And I can't, like, there's real consequences to our church not getting past where we're at right now. And that consequence is that my actual friends and neighbors will spend eternity separated from God in hell. And none of us can be okay with that. So your goal isn't yeah. to get to 100 people. It's not to get to 500 people or 1,000 people. Like, if you stopped at 1,000 people, there are still people. You're, you actually have people on your street and you are the person, you're the only person that they're in proximity to that is a truly devoted, repentant follower of Jesus. And, and, and if you stopped right now and were satisfied with a thousand people or 5,000, like I, I don't even think churches of 20,000 should stop because there's still too many people that are disconnected from God. I, I, we judge the success of our church, not by the number of the butts that are in it, but by the number of my actual friends and neighbors who aren't here yet. Yes. Yes. Right? So good. Yeah. So just two Sundays ago, I had everybody, I said, if you have a friend, a close family member or a friend who's spiritually disconnected from God, raise your hand. And almost every hand in the auditorium went up. I said, Grace Church will be done when there are no more hands up. Because if we wow. stop right now, Every friend you just thought of spends eternity separated from God. Hmm. That's why we can't be okay with this. Yeah. Right? So good, man. Yep. So it's not just the, the, the craving for more, but um, 
It's the desire for more of my actual friends, the people that I genuinely love and care about, to find faith in Jesus. So we need to keep making room for people. Yeah. Right? Because I personally have friends that are disconnected from God. Yeah. Like even, sorry, a little bit off this question, like, but like when pastors, I'll hear friends that like they, they make more money, so they, they sell their house and they move to a bigger house in a nicer neighborhood. And, and it's just casual. Like we're just going to, yeah, it's a bigger, they're just moving. And I, I'm wondering, like, what about your action? Like, were you not friends with anybody on your street? Mm. Like, what happens to those people now? So for me, like our actual neighbors, some of them, you know this, our neighbors across the street behind us, kind of corner behind us, across the street, three doors down and across the street next door, by God's grace, have all come to faith in Jesus, been baptized in our church. And I told my wife, when these other two neighbors come to faith in Jesus, then maybe, maybe we can move to a new neighborhood and start all over again. She said, no, because right. now we've got the street like we want it. <laughs> but I'm just saying, the, the, the goal isn't comfort of living, right? The, the goal is yeah. impact with the people that I'm in closest proximity to. And um, yeah, I, I, and, I, and, and I think one of the dangers, I guess I'm all over the place now, but I think one of no, the dangers- John, in, this is so good. Okay, I think one of the so biggest good. dangers in you being in ministry for long-term or me or anybody else is that the longer we're pastors of churches, the less likely we are to be close friends with those that our churches was intended to benefit. Yep, yeah. Right? So I, yeah. I, I, I especially, especially when you start from scratch, right? Cause you, if you start something from scratch, you move into a community and you, you don't know anybody or you, maybe you start from a community and all these people that you interact with are, are far from God. And then, yeah, over time they just get, they get connected and a lot of them get one to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we have to fight to stay, stay to the edges. Um, and by the edges, I mean, there really does come a time when there's enough needs within our church family to fill up all of my available time. So I have to work harder to maintain close relationships with people I'm not getting paid to serve or minister to. Yeah. So one of my encouragements yeah. is that our, our pastors on staff, I ask all of them to have a side hustle, not to supplement their income because we don't pay them enough. Although if they want to supplement their income, that's fine. But I, I want our, our, our pastors to stay connected to people outside of our church. Yeah. So one of our pastors doesn't come in until 10 o'clock every day because he opens up at LA Fitness. And I think that that's great because half the people that show up for first time on, on Sunday go, hey, you're the guy from LA Fitness. Now they see somebody they recognize and they're more likely to be comfortable and stay here. So I, I think mm -hmm. that the larger your church gets, the harder it is to stay connected with the people that your church is intended to reach. Mm -hmm. So you have to be more what creative about it. What would you say, what would you say, like when you think about a church planter that maybe over time their heart has, their heart has grown hard or even they're, they're starting right now and they're not in that place of like passion for people who are far from God. How do you how do you get that passion? In addition to like being around people, where does that come from? Uh, I think the obvious answer is the Holy Spirit. But you say in addition to being around them, I would say that that is the answer because I mean I, I think all of us get to places where we become jaded or hurt or lonely, depressed, discouraged, 
and so we can lose our passion. But if you have genuine friends, like people, I'm not saying do you love people that are far from God. I'm, I'm saying do people who are far from God love you, right? Luke 15, mm-hmm. 2, they often came to Jesus. And their problem was that he even eats with them. So it's not like just he's inviting them to temple. He's actually hanging out with them as though he genuinely loves and cares about them. Um, I, I think that if you're in a Thursday night old man basketball league and your closest friends are spiritually disconnected from God, it's hard to lose your passion for those who are far from God. Because so many of your friends, you know that if they spend the rest of this life disconnected from God and they die, they enter eternity the same way disconnected from God. I find, in, from my perspective, is that I get more, and you know this, I get more jaded towards Christians than I do, mm-hmm. than I do towards those who are out, outside of, of faith. So I would say that if you're in a place where you feel stuck or you're, you're losing your passion, I, I think one of the questions you can ask is, do I have close, like genuinely close friends who are spiritually disconnected from God in my community? And I would tend to believe that you probably don't. Mm. So that would give you something to focus on right now. Like find ways. So one of our location pastors is in a Tuesday night indoor soccer league. And there's only one other Christian on his team. Bro, that lit that dude up. He came alive Mm. spiritually once he got in that soccer league. Uh, So I think sometimes we become isolated by the needs of our church. And that, I think that can wear us thin. Yeah. Yeah. One, one thing I think I would add to that too is I remember I I am sharing this in a leadership talk I'm doing here soon. And I'm talking about this idea that mission, mission produces movement in our hearts but a person that has a sense of mission that comes from somewhere like that starts somewhere. And I have this vivid memory of being like a 12 or 13 year old kid. And I had a student pastor that taught me how to read the Bible every day. And I had this hot pink KOA mug and I would sit at the kitchen table in the house I grew up in. And I would read the Bible as like a 12 or 13 year old kid. And I remember sitting there at my parents' kitchen table and hearing God, like sensing the Holy Spirit speak into my life through the Bible. And when when I got into high school, there was just this genuine sense of what God is doing in my heart is real. Like there's joy, there's peace, there's purpose. And when you when you genuinely are encountering the Holy Spirit, there's there's just this natural overflow like you want it's like when you go to a good restaurant or you you know you have a favorite sports team i know you still like the celtics even though they suck but like <laughs> oh, the, oh, 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 wow the but but you know what i'm saying like you have something inside of you that you love and you care about and so the more the more in love i am with god the more like the more i'm encountering him it's like, how could I not want other people to experience what I'm experiencing? And that I think that that's another temptation for, for church planters and pastors is to get so busy. And, and some of this comes back to like what you were talking about with your kids and your family. Like you wanted your kids to grow up and realize that the center of the Sears family is this love for Jesus. It's not, it's not something we do professionally. Like we are personally 
all in on loving God with everything that we have. Talk about how, how do you keep that fire going as a pastor? Uh, That's bro. That's, that's hard because it's also what we get paid to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is, um, is study the Bible, um, prepare, prepare for times of discipleship and spiritual engagement. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, so my, my mind is running in, in two different directions. One direction is that I want to stay responsive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So it set me free. So the idea that you read your Bible every single day, by the way, as a 12 or 13 year old, basically a seventh grader is unbelievably inspiring to me. Like when I was a youth pastor, I'd have paid my entire salary to have two or three kids like you in my youth group. Holy cow, right? Like that would have been amazing. Um, and I think the spiritual disciplines are foundational to our, our development and, and dependence on, on God. I'm at a place now where if the Holy Spirit prompts me to stop in the middle of the day and go for a prayer walk, I'm going to go for a prayer walk. When I feel dry, I, I, I find seasons of my life where I'm spending more time reading scripture than at other times, more time in focused and dedicated prayer than at other, other times. So there are times when if I lack discipline, I'm, I'm going to be more focused on making it a regular part of every single day. Then there's other times where I'm more responsive to the Holy Spirit, where I, I got to be honest, if, if there's a day and I didn't read three chapters or what I do is I, I do the Bible app and I do the whole Bible. They've got the year. They used to have a thing by day spring. I think it was, it was a six month read through the Bible thing. They got rid of that. And so now there's just one year Bible plans. There's no six months. So I try to do two a day, but if I'm, if I miss a day, I used to feel guilt over that, and, and I'm, I'm okay if I, if I miss a day. I'm going to be responsive to the Holy Spirit and not be legalistic about this in my, in my own heart. Um, and I'm talking to God throughout the day, and there are times where He prompts me to stop and read Scripture, and then there, there are the times where I might go a day or two where I didn't read as much or listen through the whole Bible app plan. And I used to worry about not getting caught up, and I'm okay not getting caught up. I'll let that I'll finish in seven months instead of six months and got not and not feel guilty about that. So for me, I think my focus has been less on, well, I, I, I did not read five chapters today, only read three days. And, and the focus for me now is, am I being obedient to every prompting of the Holy Spirit moment by moment? That for me has been freeing and been a more life-giving rhythm of spiritual development in my own heart. I don't know if that's what you're yeah. looking for, but that's... That's what it's become for me. Yeah, it's it's so good. It's funny, you know, when you, on these podcast interviews, probably people who don't know the two of us very well wouldn't know that we have a lot of these kinds of conversations that range from this to real estate to yeah. all kinds of other things. To sports and to coaching and to... Yeah. And so there's like a natural flow and it would be easy maybe for a church planter that's listening to this to dismiss some of this because it's like not as calculated and strategic and, you know, do these five things. But I, I guess I would just say, I feel like this is the unfair advantage. Like this is the passion for God and love for people. It moves a church forward. Yes. And when it's, when it's in the heart of a leader and like we truly believe to our core 
that it's not about our name. It's not about a bigger building. It's not about a bigger salary. It's not about being in some magazine. It's not about hitting a metric. It's the fact that there are people in the communities that surround where we are starting churches that are heading towards an eternity apart from Jesus. Right. And if the gospel is true and Jesus has died and he's resurrected from the dead, that there there is an eternal reality to this mission that until everyone is reached, until every neighborhood has a church in it, what we do, there's an urgency to it that that moves the mission forward. Dude, it's right. Like that is unbelievably compelling to me. So you and I, because we're friends, I, I like we're almost a yin and yang, right? Two sides of the same coin. And that I think we're passionate about the exact same things. I think you're far more strategic. And that's been a huge asset to me as a friend. And I believe that I'm, I'm, I don't want to say more. I lean on my intuitive strengths where you, you lean heavily on your strategic strengths, right? So I'm having to become more strategic to get better at the things that I'm weak at. Uh, I had a friend of mine tell me, he said, Sean, you're, you're an intuitive leader, but if it doesn't become intentional, then it's not repeatable. It's not coachable, right? So I see the value in being strategic. It just doesn't come natural to me. So I am more of a responsive, more of an intuitive type or style in my leadership and in my own personal disciplines. Um, but I recognize in me the need as, as our church gains influence or as my responsibilities in the communities that we're serving in become greater to be more intentional and strategic than what I've been. So opportunities like this to learn from you and in our private conversations has been a real, it's been an asset to my own leadership in whatever capacity God's allowed me to have in the kingdom of God here in New England. Mm. And I appreciate that. Well, I, the, the feeling is mutual. And I think when you have a conversation, even just like our conversation today is just a, it's a catalyst for me personally, like to, to come back to center of why, why we do what we do. And there's this little axiom I've, I've heard and we've used before. You, you do the right thing for the right reason, for the right length of time, and you get the right result. And it's easy in church planting to focus on the right thing. Like if I do the right thing, I'm going to get the right result. Right. And the, the truth is that the right reason brings you back to the right thing. Man. And so this conversation has really been about the right reason yes, sir. behind why we do what we do. <laughs> Somebody needs to write that down. Hey, um, for those of you guys who are listening, um, we, we're doing cohorts for church planters. Sean is one of the mentors and is hosting uh, the first group. Unfortunately, um, that group is filled already. So if you're listening, you can't be in on that one, but we're going to have mo- more cohorts that are coming out. And you, if you go to uh, theascentleader.org slash cohorts, you'll see some of the future cohorts. And maybe Sean will be one of the mentors for that one as well. But uh, sh- as you can tell, Sean is so passionate and is such a great leader. Sean, are there any final words that you would say as we, we wrap up our time together? Yeah, I, 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 I would say that the kind of people your church is going to attract are the people that you're currently close friends to. So if you want more, I hate to use the word lost, but spiritually disconnected people in your church plant, then you have to spend more time making friends with people who are spiritually disconnected from God. Um, I, 
it's weird the number of church planters who go out and start churches but actually have no context to build relationships with the people that their church is, is supposed to reach. So it's almost like if I can get enough Christians to start coming to my church plant, then they will start bringing their friends. But what they're going to do is like you, you, you teach, like you pass on what you, what you are, right? Or like they learn, uh, what's that phrase? You would know it, but it's not what you say. It's what you do that, that, that matters. And so like you reproduce mm-hmm. who you are, not what you say. Right. Yeah. Your culture becomes a reflection of who you are. And I like how you say that you like you reach who you are. So right. if you're, you know, you, you have a tendency to connect with people very similar, but those relationships, if you're, if you're spending time around a bunch of people that are, you know, they're disgruntled Christians the from green, other churches. Right. That's what you'll attract. Right. Right. That's, that's my, so our, our church is really diverse, right? Also. So like we're 40% white, 40% black, and the rest is mainly Brazilian. And people will ask me, like, how did you get your church so diverse? And it's not like we got our church so diverse. It's that our neighbors across the street who had a friend attempt suicide were our closest friends in town. And that family is black. So socially, they started bringing all of their other friends. And churches are social constructs. They are a reflection of the actual friendship na- net network of the leaders in that church. So if your church really is focused on reaching spiritually disconnected people, then that ought to be reflected in the way that you spend your time socially. My encouragement to church planters is to actually like get outside of Christian circles and become close. Everybody talks about God. Everybody talks about God. Atheists are obsessed with God, right? Everybody talks about God. It's just that nobody wants to talk about God to people they're uncomfortable with. So your job as a church planter is to become the person they're most comfortable talking to about that. Yep. Right? And that, that does mm-hmm. take time. That's not the fast track to growth, but I, I think it's the fast track to reaching the people you say that your church is here to reach. So I, I think church planters ought to spend less time with Christians and more time with publicans and sinners. And we know somebody else famous who did that too. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and he's he's a good one to be like. <laughs> hey, man, I love you. I'm so grateful for your investment in, in this tribe and so grateful for your willingness to be a mentor and, and host the, the first church planting group. And uh, th- there's no way that you won't be back on this podcast because this this conversation just scratches the surface of your story and your heart for church planters. So thanks for joining us today on the Unfair Advantage podcast for church planters. It was an honor. Thanks. Well, that was such an incredible episode. I love uh, Sean's conversation about his family and how he prays for his kids. And I, even in there, I, I made the mistake of calling the Celtics a bad basketball team. I was wrong on that one. So I'm going to take ownership for that part of the conversation. Um, but I love this quote that says, one of the most dangerous things to happen to your church plant is for you to get to 100 people because now you have enough people in your church to distract you from the mission of your church. And I wanna encourage you uh, to take some time to really analyze your, your mission and to say, am I focused on the mission that God has given to me for our church? Y'all, this has been a great episode. Again, thank you to our sponsors, Food for the Hungry. Thank you, The Ascent Leader uh, and the Strategic Launch Network. We wanna encourage you also to check that out. 
uh, which is the, the parent organization that helped both Sean's church in Boston and Echo Church in the Bay Area get started. They, they plant churches all over the country, strategic launch network, um, and continue the conversation with us. Y'all, we are here to serve you. We say our goal is to help church planters win early and finish strong. And I hope that today's episode helped you do that. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode for another great conversation with a church planter, a pastor who has made a huge difference in my life. And we'll see you back on that episode for the fourth episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast for church planters. Thanks for joining us. 